Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast Half-Full Editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host david wanchurch how are you dave i'm hanging in there yourself i am well i feel like we've been talking a lot about bourbon and uh, american whiskey in the the last few weeks uh, more than even normal for us so let's talk about it some more (laughs) (laughs) well maybe we'll just get it all out but i I don't think that's i I don't think that's really gonna happen um i don't want it really to happen I, i i enjoy our our talks quite a bit and uh it got to a point with uh, like a lot of things where I'm like, you know what, like this would actually probably make a pretty good podcast. Um, so let's stop talking now and record it so that other people can hear it too. Yeah, let's let's give it a try. I mean, it's a topic that it turns out I knew a lot less about than I thought I did. Yeah. And the more I look into it, the more I realize, holy Hannah, this thing is complicated. I, it's It kind of feels like we've taken up a layer of like tile in a bathroom only to find another layer of tile. And then under that's another layer. And like, I don't know how many layers we're going to have to go through. I, I don't know. I, the, I mean, I, until we go all the way through. That, I think it's but. linoleum all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe we're, we're looking for that wood at the bottom finally. It's a big world. And to be honest, most of the knowledge out there and most of what people write about is the modern world of bourbon, right? I mean, what, and that is highly yeah. codified. There's regulations, you know, government regulations, you know, kind of governing how, you know, what it needs to be made from, how it, you know, the proof, uh, you yeah. know, how it can be I aged. Mean, all the it, distilleries have been visited, you know. Absolutely. Uh, all the every everything is, is is like out there to be to be found. It's it's not uh, it, it, it's a knowable world, the the modern world of bourbon. You know, nobody blame you for thinking that's how it's always been made, right? And I think right. that's how most of us who who know and love bourbon have sort of come into it, thinking, okay, like this is how it's made today, and some of these brands have been around for a long time. And we talk a lot about history and bourbon, so it must be how it's always been made. Like these things must be chiseled in stone. I mean, and yet, and yeah, right. I mean, that's <laughs> as, as, as like a teaser. Let's say uh, we'll, we'll get to this in a, in, in in a few minutes. But there's there's this uh, article that was published by the uh, Louisville Commercial, a paper that no longer exists. On March 14th, 1870, where the author uh, says, uh, let's talk about Kentucky whiskey. And uh, says uh, then, the methods by which it is produced are known but to few persons outside of a limited number of practical distillers, even dealers in the article being generally ignorant of the different processes 
by which it is made. And then he goes on to list the six kinds of whiskey made in Kentucky and in detail, like how they made them. And we don't make those whiskeys anymore. Almost all of them are. There's some other stuff we should talk about first, maybe. That's for like a historian or a journalist. That's when the warning lights start to go off, right? When you find, yeah, you know, you, you start finding, you know, bits and pieces, threads, you know, or mentions in old newspaper articles, you know, books that, you know, obscure books that, you know, now are available through the magic of the internet or Amazon or, on, you know, used book sites. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you realize like, wait, like that doesn't, that doesn't really work with our modern idea of what bourbon is or was. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's very exciting, right? But it's also kind of terrifying because you realize wow um uh there's a lot that we don't know and we often speak in you know kind of finite terms and really we don't really know still it wasn't like that right and we don't really know you know for some of these things what the answer is i mean even you know there's a lot of debate a lot of elaborate theories about who was the first person to make bourbon where the name comes from even it we don't we can't even agree on that or have found a definitive source. I mean, there are a lot of detailed analysis of, of different, yeah. it seems that everybody who has written a book on bourbon has a different opinion about these matters. Some of those opinions are very strongly held. Yes, and, and <laughs> you know? it's not like a jigsaw where it's like, okay, if we just turn one piece, all of these things no. will now fit together. It's like somebody has like mixed together different jigsaw puzzles and we're trying to make... <laughs> we're trying yeah. to make one and, and, and half all of the them. pieces you know there were a lot of dogs in the household and they right. like to eat cardboard <laughs> 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 yes yes i mean some of them make more sense than others and, and yeah. to be honest you know when you look back at some of the 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 most interesting and some of our favorite whiskey books you know from the social history of bourbon by uh carol carson or kentucky bourbon the early years of whiskey making by uh Henry Crouchy, you know, these are things that, you know, people have been debating for decades. I mean, th- these are questions that are kind of incapable of being answered, which yes. is why they're still around. It's like, you know, questions about who first made rum in the new world or, you know, uh, there, all, there are lots of questions like that when it comes to history, because a lot of the people who are doing these things weren't doing it and writing down what they were doing. They weren't famous. They were just people doing stuff. That doesn't get chronicled, really. It kind of reminds me of a story that you did for Half Full a few years ago about all of the research that you had found about the martini, right? It was like an annotation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, that was a lot of work. And I think some of these questions, just because we don't know the answer, and I'm not sure if we ever will, doesn't mean that we shouldn't look into them. Because as your story and many of your stories prove, even going down these rabbit holes, if you will, going, you know, going on these you know, adventures mm-hmm. looking for more information yield all types of interesting and unexpected discoveries, you know, that about the world of cocktails. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, you have to like, you know, lay a, a trail of crumbs into this stuff. And a lot of people, I think, uh, just dive in looking for the one thing they're looking for. Right. And they don't lay the trail of crumbs. And so uh, they they find things. but. There, there's no sort of path to that knowledge. And, that, and, and it's if you lay those paths, then when you find stuff along the way and you can find more where it 
proves to be interesting. Half the yeah. time you don't realize it was interesting uh, until later. And, and when you get another piece of information and it's like, whoa, wait a minute, that goes with that. And suddenly, ah, it's really slow work. Yeah. And, and even some of the things that we, we kind of take for granted, like even the idea of, you know, curing the inside of a barrel, like, you know, the, the, the regulations right. now require, you know, a new oak container. I mean, that's the law or the regulation, but it, which really means like a new oak barrel and, you know, it's charred and it has to be charred. Um, we think of that as you know, very American, you know, that this is like, you know, one of the essential pieces of making American whiskey. And, and people think of it as being like this kind of frontier thing that right. they, you know, there's a lot of wishful thinking. It's like, oh, they were on the frontier. They were making whiskey. They probably, why did they char the barrels? I don't know. Maybe the barrels had other things in them and they wanted to get rid of the taste. Okay, that's what happened. Well, you know, in fact, like the charring, you find it in scientific journals of the time. It was like the latest in 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 storage technology. And it was you know, discussed in by very serious scientists and and in France and England. And, you know, in America, they read those journals, even on the frontier. And they said, well, why don't we put our whiskey in that? It's less about who was the first person to char the barrels, but it's more why. And right. I think the fact that the regulations now require the new oak container, the barrel to be charred, it's not because of, you know, as we once thought, this sort of homespun theory of like reusing the barrel, but it's more because of the actual properties of the barrel, which was mind blowing yeah. to me because that's, that's accepted fact that it was just either a total accident that they were charred in the first place, right. like a lightning strike or something, or that it was because they wanted to get the flavor of like fish out of a barrel. So they burned it. I mean, I, to be honest, I don't even like cooking fish in my house because the, the smell is so strong sometimes. And if you really think about it, like if a barrel had been sitting there for months with herring in it, wouldn't the herring have really soaked in? I mean, you could burn that barrel for hours. It would still yeah. smell like herring. I oh, mean, yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I, I don't. I don't I, really want fish whiskey. I've got to tell you. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't need to fill a barrel with herring and, and, and uh, test that yeah. theory out, yeah. uh, I think. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if if you if you look in the right places, I mean, there's there's a book published in uh, the heart of rye whiskey country in Western Pennsylvania in, in 1824, where they where the guy it's like his encyclopedia of knowledge for farmers basically, and he just comes out and says, you know, if you put a whiskey in a charred barrel, uh, it will uh, improve the flavor and it will give you color very quickly. There's That's the it. reason right there. <laughs> I mean, was everybody using a char barrel in like the 1800s? Probably not. Probably not originally, but right. I know. mean, like, like you but know, but it was a competitive advantage for the people. Absolutely, who it, it definitely. Were. I mean, I think that's part of it. Also, is just that now everybody. I mean, there are obviously differences from distillery to distillery and brand from brand. Yeah. Even the different brands that distillery will make, but at least it all follows the same regulations. Where where back in the day it was wide open i mean it, you could should we talk about the six kinds of whiskey in kentucky absolutely yeah <laughs> okay which just shows the range of of what was going on the guy the guy defines them you know in, in this article unfortunately it's anonymous <laughs> so number one is i wrote it dave Stout. i'll admit it i wrote it back then i didn't want to put my name on it but i'm owning up to it you you, you did good i mean you visited <laughs> all the distilleries and you know 
<laughs> I hope you I hope you set some barrels aside for some bottles. Evidently, old whiskey is worth something these days. So we've got sour mash pure copper. And that's that was the name of a style. It wasn't just like random words. And you know, and you see that in ads if somebody's talking about they're selling uh sour mash pure copper or fire copper whiskey. Uh, it's sour mash, so, so they're gonna use some of the uh spent wash from uh from from distilling to uh mix in with the uh the the grain for the next batch and uh turn it into ash to distill. The mash for the sour mash pure copper, it was also small tub whiskey. That was another technical yeah. term. And and we don't use that anymore. Uh small tub whiskey meant they used whiskey barrels to do the mashing in individual ones. So, you yeah. know, they they they'd use like 20 or 30 barrels at a time and that stuff had to be stirred by hand. So it was labor and and the mash is really hot. I mean, it's like yeah. if you I it's mean, almost I, boiling, you know. Yeah, I remember doing it once with Chris Morris down at Woodford Reserve, and, and it was, you know, a hot day in Kentucky. The mash is nearly boiling. It is hard work to do that. It's hard it's work, like, especially, you know, you're doing it in the small tubs. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. Uh uh, you it's it's a lot of stirring. I I've 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 uh, helped to stir in uh at George Washington's distillery when a uh, bunch of distillers years ago did a, did a test batch in a still set up in a field. I was there as the embedded journalist. So that meant I carried water and stirred mash. Which <laughs> 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 is about all I was good for. So you've got sour mash whiskey made in small tubs. And then the uh, pure copper meant it was distilled twice in copper pot stills. Like, you know, we're we're making pure copper whiskey again in a lot of the micro distilleries. It turns out that's an authentic style and uh, much later than we think. You know, this is from 1870. And then they uh, there's some there's some other technical stuff, which is very weird. They use the uh, the first distillation uh, to to reduce the second distillation sometimes to uh, to proof. So it's all it's all very complicated, but it's like a real old fashioned handmade way of doing things. And that was the prestige stuff. Yeah. Then you got sour mash log and copper. Log was also a technical term. That meant you used a wooden still, which was what, what we call today a three-chamber still. There's only one distillery in America that has one right now. And that's uh, the Leopold brothers in Denver who had to have one made specially because that hasn't been used since World War II. Sort of a semi-automatic type still. It's like a stack of pot stills uh, made out of wood because you're running steam into it. You don't have to worry about burning it up. Which in itself is crazy. I mean, when yeah, I think you had first mentioned this to me in passing a few years ago. And like looking into it, I mean, basically the idea that you're making a still out of wood. Out of wood. I had found a, an, like kind of a news item obit recently for a distiller, I think in Illinois, who was killed using one right it was too much pressure in the wood um this wooden three chamber still and exploded right and he was burned That's crazy. I mean, it's, yeah it's, it's it's dangerous but you know every distillery had a cooper on hand at the time right so so it was a lot cheaper to make your own and use copper only for the you know the plates inside that separate the chambers of the still uh it, you know it sort of works like a stack of pot stills feeding into each other 
and and almost built like a stack of barrels almost like straight barrels yeah, I mean, yeah or like uh, like one of the big tanks that they that they uh blend cognac in you know exactly it, it's like a big wooden tank that they feed steam in at the bottom and uh it boils through the mash and strips out the alcohol i mean just the idea that like you know we always think of a still being made of metal i mean just in itself that the fact that it's wood is is really like incredible and that we sort of lost that. I know. I mean, that nobody. Well, I got a remembers that. I, <laughs> I got a text from a distiller not uh, too long ago, showing me a miniature, uh, like barrel-sized three-chamber still he was building. So we'll see. Uh, he's doing a test one in wood. Wow. Uh, so it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen because it was used for a really long time. It was used for the entire 19th century, and really big brands used wooden stills. The sour mash log and copper. Uh, this uh, this guy says uh, uh, so. It goes the first run, you know, where you get like up to about I don't know forty uh, percent alcohol, thirty forty percent alcohol uh, came out of the uh, maybe a little higher. Uh, it came out of this huge log still or or wooden still, uh, and then they would double it in in quote fire copper, so a, a wood heated copper pot still. So it gets distilled again, uh, kind of like what they do in, in micro distilleries. And this guy goes on to say, uh, most of the sour mash whiskey made in the state is made on this plan. So it wasn't just some holdouts. This is what people yeah. were making. You and I were looking at an article from 1913 that shows like a horizontal copper doubler used yeah. without like what it says, the caption is used without vapor pipe or condensing tub in connection with three chamber wooden still. And it almost looks like an early submarine like the you know the merrimack or the monitor or something from the civil war you know but made of copper and that's you know that was hooked up to the, the three chamber wooden still they still use that in canada by the way because i've seen them at uh, several very large canadian distilleries where they call it a pot still hmm. and it's the doubler you know and and uh, it comes out of a column still a huge modern like steam jacketed a 30 foot high column still but it goes into one of those submarines right there and it's it's funny and that was you know that that's 100 years old at least so uh, that that technology Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Third kind of whiskey, uh, sweet mash, pure copper. It's the same as the sour uh, mash, pure copper. So it's double pot stills, but instead of sour mash, you make the mash. You you you, you know you grind the grain, and then you pour uh, boiling water on it, not spent mash from the previous distillation. And that makes us you know a slightly less complex whiskey, but some people like it. Uh, they used a lot of sweet mash for making rye whiskey, for instance because uh, the sour mash was just a little too funky. Yeah. Rye is already funky. I was going to say. It's, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't so need it any like, help there. Like, yeah, all right, we, we get it. <laughs> funky, enough. Uh, then there's steam copper, 
uh, where uh, you get rid of all the small uh, tubs and the extra labor and uh, you do all the mashing in a huge uh, wooden or, or metal uh, tub with a mechanical agitator and you heat it with steam injection and you know and it, it's it's modernized that uses sweet hop yeast which is yeast that has a lot of hops in it and they still use that for making bourbon and it gives it a little bit of bite in the flavor the hops a little bit of hops goes a long way so this is uh, distilled in a in a wooden beer still so the same thing that that wooden uh column uh but no doubler attached it's doubled separately in a copper pot still why i don't know <laughs> it's like then, every permutation of like yeah distilling. this one he got he doesn't talk about much uh but then there's bourbon steam whiskey uh which is the same as the steam copper so they use a big tub for for mashing uh but it's got a wooden doubler doubler or thumper attached which you still see sometimes in, in Kentucky. Oh, yeah. It's like a wooden keg uh, where stuff comes off of this uh, big three chamber still here and goes into a keg where it bubbles through condensed steam, basically, and strips off the alcohol and comes out again. As the guy said, this trade con constitutes the bulk of Bourbon County whiskey. So any whiskey made in Bourbon County is made this way. And then there's finally like a higher alcohol stuff that's made with lower grade corn and rye that's made to be uh, redistilled and used in blended whiskey and stuff like that. Uh, and he doesn't talk about that much because he's embarrassed with, of it. But he says it also put in like uncharred barrels too. Uncharred like, barrels, yeah. So used really barrels, in other words, yeah. or or un uncharred cooperage. They don't need the uh, the extra char because it's not going to. Uh, be sold as whiskey it's going to be sold as uh as alcohol for redistilling i mean that's a pretty good idea of what was going on but there's even other there are horizontal log stills you know there this are this is only the six kinds there are probably if you looked around america you'd find another eight kinds there's tennessee whiskey which is like the bourbon steam whiskey big three chamber still uh doubled uh in a, in, a, in a wooden or sometimes a copper doubler. But uh, then everything gets filtered through maple charcoal at the beginning. And that filtration goes back way into the 18th century. They were rectifying whiskey with that, with charcoal yeah. in the early 19th century. And it wasn't just Tennessee whiskey, but Tennessee was really into it and that was their favorite. So uh, it became the, the style for Tennessee whiskey. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that at this point, there are really only a couple of stills used in America. I mean, if you take yeah. out Todd Leopold's three-chamber still out in Denver, I mean, it's basically column still for the most part, which is just a giant tower that can be, yeah. you know, three, four, five stories tall, right? And, I mean, so wide. I, you know, the ones at Jack Daniels are, I couldn't even put my arms around them. They're so big, yeah. right? And there are different plates inside, and each plate is a distillation. Um, and then pot stills which are used you know certainly less commonly than the column stills and although just... you know the micro distillers brought them back i yes. mean in a big way yeah but, he, yeah, but, but by volume certainly by volume certainly most of it's probably made in <laughs> the column still kid uh is so well yeah okay fair is, enough uh, you know, not only do we have, do people not use these other types of stills, but we don't even talk about them. You know what I mean? It's, or, yeah. you know, there's no reference. I had never heard of 
and I wasn't sure I totally believed you when you told me that stills were made from wood, but it's, you know, it's, it happened. But yeah, it's, it's actually true. And it, and, and it was used, I mean, you know, I think, you know, Wayne Curtis recently wrote a story about Todd Leopold and his rye and a lot about, you know, his story. And, And as a result, you and I have gone down looking for even more information about three chamber stills. And, and it's really amazing that they were used through the thirties, like in Maryland yeah. and, and in the Northeast for making rye. And I mean, it's not, it's not something that was used 200 years ago. And we're talking about less than a hundred years ago and, 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 and touted in, in newspaper ads all over the country, you know, for rye whiskey, like made in, you know, made the real way in a three chamber still is basically what the ads say. And those ads run all over. I mean, it's just pretty incredible. I mean, I think something like six years ago, I wrote a big article for the uh, Whiskey Advocate. And that was when I, I came across all that stuff. And, and that was uh, Todd Leopold was doing his research at, at the same time, maybe a little earlier. And, you know, nobody nobody believed any of this. And I finally had to show pictures. You know, I couldn't figure out what made them uh, disappear. Like you said, you know, in the 30s, you see them coming back after prohibition. People tried really hard to put things back the way they were before prohibition. And people who made rye especially uh, knew that the three chamber still was was perfect for rye because it kind of gave you a cleaner spirit than a pot still, but it gave rye some some texture that uh, you don't get as much on rye with a with a with a column still like bourbon switched to. And so they started up again with three chambers. But I think what happened, I, I know you and I have been doing research on this and we've come across a bunch of stuff about World War II. It turns out World War II was just as traumatic as prohibition for the whiskey industry in some ways. Uh, everybody had to shut down and make uh, industrial alcohol. And the people who had three chamber stills couldn't really do that. They couldn't get the stuff up to as high proof as the people who had column stills. So the War Production Board basically put column stills in their distilleries you know it was sort of like a two-part step right because first yeah. the war production board calculated uh, they had, had a stock of 550 million gallons of whiskey at the beginning of the war which they figured would last four or five years based upon annual consumption <laughs> rates so i mean yeah. I, I found all of this like you know i didn't really know about any of this uh, you know when i started working on the art of american whiskey my book that's that's where i came across all this stuff and you know, once we get into World War II, you know, all these distilleries are running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're supplying alcohol for a range of products. Yeah, a lot of stuff uses alcohol as the base, explosives, uh, you know, uh, synthetic rubber. There's all kinds of stuff like that. It makes a lot of sense that, like, you know, the government would want to invest in these distilleries to help them put in new stills and given you know sort of all hands on deck for the war yeah. effort that they could get a still probably made very quickly and put in quickly so you know i mean they were they were they were scouring around even for for like used pieces just anything so they didn't have to produce new stuff yeah. you know it was really interesting there was a whole lot of testimony that was given about this uh, in 1942 and 43 and it, i mean it's really it's really interesting for the history of whiskey <laughs> just you you see the uh the need to uh to do this stuff and uh but at the same time you see kind of a lot of uh diversity in whiskey making dying right there it just was not good for the war effort and everybody had to 
be geared towards that. And by the time that the war is over, I mean, it's 25 years since the beginning of prohibition, right? So, you yeah. know, over those two and a half decades, you know, the, the whiskey industry has only worked semi-normally for a few years yeah. before, you know, they, they have to shut down again for the war. So, you know, if we stopped making something today and picked it up again in 25 years, like, no wonder a lot of stuff was lost and you have all these new production yeah. methods because of the war. And I mean, which, you know, obviously transform a lot of different industries, everything from, you know, furniture, you know, you know, all of the mid-century modern and, uh, you know, the, all the Eames, you know, designs that make you yeah, know, yeah, use yeah. of all these new techniques for, for bending wood and making plastics and stuff. And I mean, you should see it over and over again. Like the technology they'd used to make PT boat hulls. Exactly. Know? Is now making, you know, a, a, a beautiful, you know, living room chair. But it's a weird thing. And, and obviously the whiskey industry is not immune. And then you have all these other effects of people, you know, you know, all the GIs, you know, going to Europe and the Caribbean. And, you know, as, as whiskey gets, even despite the war board's projections, ever more scarce during the war, people are drinking rum and other things and mm -hmm. it's no wonder you know tr you know when this is all over that that what they're making and what people want is different than what they were making and what they wanted to drink you know before prohibition started when it came out of world war ii the whiskey industry uh, you know they were gun shy they they were like okay Hey, we're going to use column stills because if they shut us down again, you know at least we'll be able to make money on on on, on industrial alcohol and uh, at the same time, you know, they had some stocks of whiskey left that had been aging, but uh, they had to stretch it out as much as possible because, you know, if they sold it all, it would be gone and then they'd be out of business. So suddenly you see blended whiskey and, and lots of blended whiskey oh, yeah. coming in and using that industrial alcohol that they'd learned to make. I mean, the biggest industrial alcohol producer in the United States was uh, the Publicker Company of Philadelphia, their distillery there. And uh, they are they were known for Rittenhouse Rye Whiskey was theirs. That was their brand. And not to be confused that like American blended whiskey is very different than blended Scotch whiskey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean. Or blended you know, Canadian for that matter. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, generally in America, it's. It is neutral spirit. The stuff they use in Scotland and Canada is, is grain whiskey, which is just a little bit richer and has yeah. to be aged. It's one of the reasons why Canadian whiskey uh, basically ate uh, the American whiskey's industry's lunch in the 1960s, 70s, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, is because their whiskey was actually better. Yeah, than right, where ours was, I mean, it's basically straight whiskey blended with neutral grain spirit. That's, yeah, I mean, you could make it easily by taking a bottle of vodka and a bottle of uh, bourbon or two bottles of vodka and a bottle of bourbon to be more right. realistic, <laughs> uh, pouring them together in a jug and then right. uh, putting a little caramel color in, in until it right. looks like whiskey, because that's exactly how it was made. And you, ha and you see like a lot of brands go from straight or what people knew as straight whiskey before the war, before prohibition, mm -hmm. and they're now become blends, right? And, and there's a yeah, lot they of, I mean, you know, it's not whiskey. like, the, the manufacturers were trying to pull a fast one. They didn't really right. have a choice. <laughs> and whiskey drinkers knew. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like people realized like, oh, like this is, this is not okay. Like this tastes different. Like I don't, 
Yeah, I, I mean, like this. David thing. Embury talks about that. You know, I was just about, I was just thinking that he's some very choice words about um, brands moving there for production from you know I think from Kentucky to the Midwest you know and turning their brands into blends. But uh, yeah. you know, like many periods in American whiskey history, once the brands are able to get a few years of production under their belt and put away whiskey and age it. Um, mm-hmm. The blends go away. I mean, or they they become very yeah they very fade. secondary. But but a lot of that is sales that would never go back to whiskey right until well, very that's... recently. You know, yeah. And a lot I mean, of people that's... just said, as long as if I'm going to be drinking vodka, I might as well drink vodka. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Or, or why people habit. or why people switch to say you know blended Scotch whiskey. You know, if, exactly. You know, it was certainly a lot yeah. more flavorful and richer. So you know, at that point, we kind of get you know in, in many ways into the modern era and, and that is familiar territory but yeah it, that we understand i i think uh from world war ii and before way weirder than you know that i than i had understood yeah and and in many ways you know again i think more complex and more corporate in certain ways you know and there are a lot of factors you know figuring in you know to oh, why yeah, yeah. it's being made and and a lot of those things have just you know, sort of been streamlined out of the story of bourbon, you know, yeah. I'm not, you know, over the years. And- I mean, I sure would like to uh, go back to Kentucky in, in 1870 and taste those six kinds of whiskey, you know? Yeah. <laughs> get Todd Leopold working on a, on a yeah. few other. Uh, yeah, uh, I think we got to get him going uh, on uh, bourbon projects. steam, maybe, or, uh, yes. or, uh, or, Sweet mash, pure copper. You know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He's to build the whole some museum. Small, of, some uh, small tub mashing. Uh, get all the bartenders to come out and stir. <laughs> we may be constricted into this uh, yeah, bourbon uh, force. So, uh, for the sake of bourbon, I'm willing to give it a try. So, as two people who write and you know about bourbon American whiskey fairly often, it is a little terrifying to realize that like. You know, you didn't know the whole picture, and we probably won't ever know the whole picture. Yeah. Um, so it's you know, kind of like to the best of our knowledge, this is our understanding today. But um, you know, it's exciting because I think there are many other layers and many other weird things that we're going to find, um, and and then the pieces start to come into focus and, yep. and fit together the right way. That's the rich part of life, you know. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, uh, I I, I kind of like it better this way, you know. It's like it, it, I'm always going to find something that that's going to blow my mind. I clink my glass uh, containing, uh, I guess it's basically steam copper whiskey or uh, bourbon steam is the closest that it comes. And uh, exactly, uh, I, I've got no complaints with it. Me either. But we will uh, toast our uh, predecessors and uh, the the history of uh, bourbon uh, today. Cheers. Cheers. Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.